Hello and welcome back. After the huge success of the mini-series on Queen Mary I, I invited back Dr. Johanna Strong, and she has brought to us another great topic. I hope you enjoy. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast's mini-series on queenship. I am your host, Dr. Johanna Strong, and in this series, we have been traveling through time and around the world to learn more about global queenship. In the final episode of our queenship series, I am joined by Holly Marston, Amy Jane Humphreys, and Dr. Gabrielle Story to talk about the Team Queens Collective and global queenship. Holly is currently completing her PhD through the AHRC's Collaborative Doctoral Partnership Scheme at the University of Winchester and Historic Royal Palaces in collaboration with the National Portrait Gallery and Royal Museums Greenwich. Her thesis looks at Mary II in the context of queenship, culture, and politics in the 17th century. Amy is currently working on her PhD at the University of Liverpool, researching royal women of the early Georgian court in Britain. She's also the people administrator for the Hampshire Cultural Trust. And last, but certainly not least, we have Gabby, who is a visiting research fellow at the University of Winchester. Her research focuses on 12th and 13th century queenship, examining co-rulership, queenship, gender, sexuality, and perceptions of power. She is the founder of the Team Queens Collective, of which Holly, Amy, and I were all a part. So thank you, each of you, for agreeing to come on today. I am absolutely thrilled that we get to keep our conversation going about Team Queens, and what a wonderful way to end this series. So thank you. Really yeah, excited to be you. here and have yeah. a chat, so... My pleasure. It's always wonderful when kind of friendships and professional networks collide. It's wonderful. And the first question, which hopefully will ease you into the podcast, is what got you started in queenship? So why don't we start with Holly? Sure. Um, so in my during my undergrad, I studied art history and I first encountered queenship through looking at how royal mistresses self-fashioned their own identities um, through art. So I've always kind of been interested in the role of visual culture in conveying particular ideologies. And queens are a really good example of this um, and an, a good example of the need to convey a lot of conflicting ideologies in order to be deemed successful with art a vehicle with which to do so. So yeah, I kind of I kind of went sideways from early modern women and then mistresses and then into queens. I always love these kind of sideways approaches. I think there have been very few people on the series so far who've gone, well, I've just always wanted to do it and that's that. Um, I think it's it's amazing how many different approaches there are. And so what are you currently working on? So I am writing my thesis, as you lovely, as your lovely introduction mentioned, 
Um, so I'm looking at how Mary II cultivated her queenship through art, architecture and material culture with a focus on the many identities that she inhabited. Um, so that's the thesis. And then I'm also working on an exhibition called Crown to Couture with Historic Royal Palaces, which is opening at Kensington Palace next week. Um, and it it's not overtly about queenship, but there is a lot of, there are queens involved. Um, and it looks at the space of the Georgian court and the space of the red carpet, arguing that they serve similar functions with the whole idea that clothing is political. Um, yeah, and we have some gorgeous, gorgeous gowns worn by um, Georgian women. Um, yeah, and kind of understanding that clothing was your ticket into the into the space of the court, which has been very, very fun. And and I don't know, I've always been a Stuart gal, but I'm now I'm now coming into your campaign, I think. <laughs> yeah, come over to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> so I have tickets, my parents are coming over for the next half term, and we said listen. We have to go and we're all very excited to see it. Uh, and we've seen kind of the sneak peeks of the press launch and there are some amazing, amazing outfits on display. Yeah, I mean, the the start for me, being a historian, the stars of the show are the Georgian outfits. I know lots of people are going to flock to the celebrities, but I, I hope people pay lots of attention to the beautiful gowns and men's court suits that we have too. Yes, we can pay homage to those first Georgian celebrities. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure this is something that Amy has many thoughts on. Amy, what, what got you interested in queenship and what is your current project? What are you, what are you doing, kind of thesis and not? Uh, so I, I suppose I've, I've always been interested in royal history generally, and that kind of happened through osmosis, I think, because my mum was always watching royal documentaries uh, but I think the the kind of light bulb moment if you like where I realized gosh these people are interesting um, was in my third year of my undergraduate degree when I took Dr Ellie Woodacre's Monstrous Regiment of Women module and I remember that summer I, I read Sharon Jansen's book um, which is which the module borrows the title from. It's the monstrous regiment of women, female rulers in early modern Europe, and it just changed everything. It was because of the their interconnectedness and how utterly essential these women were to all of the um, structural uh, apparatus of rule, if you like. Um, and I've never looked back from there. Really, I I caught I got the bug <laughs> for queens, and I've sort of followed them through. And I've bounced around different periods. So I was much more comfy with the Tudors. Then I went a bit Stuart and then ended up with, with the Georgians who are so infectious. You can't kind of look away. Um, and they demand to be looked at a little bit, I think. Um, but my thesis, it, it looks at uh, the, the problem of the early Georgian period where there was really no queen consort. Uh, so for the 46 years, uh, cumulatively, that George I and II ruled, you only had a queen for 10. Uh, and yet the monarchy was able to withstand significant challenges to it, mainly from the Jacobites, but also from their own tendency to cause political issues at home. Uh, and what really became apparent to me was that the princesses of Wales 
and the mistresses were kind of covering the role between them. Uh, and my thesis looks at basically how that works, how that manifests. How do you get a quasi consort? And how, what does that look like? What does she do? Uh, so I've got to actually play a lot with art at the minute because the chapter I've been working on is is basically on, on what it looks like. How does how do the princesses of Wales particularly at the moment, because that's where I've gotten to, uh, market themselves as queens before they actually get to become queens or don't in Augusta of Saxe-Gotha's case. She doesn't get to be, whereas Caroline of Ansbach does. So it's been really great. I'm not, a, I'm not an art historian by... Uh, <laughs> kind of trade as it were but I'm, I'm learning and I'm really really enjoying it so yeah I think it's it's always so exciting to see people move kind of between periods and to see what what similarities are but also that kind of each era has its own kind of scandals and gossip and intrigue and its own set of characters and it's kind of different stories but the same kind of plots which is fascinating yes absolutely and gabby what about you what got you into queenship uh, i've slightly differently i think i got into it from quite a young age through historical fiction like you know all those what they call them bodice rippers and so on sounds <laughs> like the really fanciful like medieval uh royal fictions and so on and I was just thinking, you know, I was at school and college and we just didn't have queens as part of the core bit of study. And then I got to university and I was like, ah, now I can look at them a bit more, but couldn't necessarily look at quite what I wanted to do. So I could have looked at Roman empresses. So I ended up looking at the Romans as um, a focal point. And then like everyone else, you know, you meet Ellie and you realise that there's a whole world of other opportunities to delve into and I think when you love a topic when you love history and queenship you just want to like hoover up everything and I think I'm still at that point now even though I've done a PhD I'm still like just give me all the queens everything like I get so excited by what everyone else is doing and that's part of the reason why I love teen queens so when I was talking to Ellie as I was finishing off my MA and thinking about what my PhD was going to be on and we went for Eleanor of Aquitaine as an idea, but then we're like, oh, she's been done a bit. And then the thesis kind of grew from there in terms of looking at the queens around her and so on. And that's led to what I'm working on at the moment, which is a biography of Berengaria of Navarre, Richard Leinhardt's wife, which will, fingers crossed, be out at the end of this year. Got to plough through uh, my revisions and just carry on editing and beavering away at it. And I've also got... Uh, public history book that I'm working on the proposal for at the moment which is going to be a lot more around rules gender and sexualities because those are like the real sexy bits of my research that I just love doing you know you want the juicy stuff sometimes when you're looking at these queens and absolutely so yeah still really excited about everything and it's, it's so exciting as you say now kind of when you get to the end of the PhD and you think well, now what? Now I don't have that structure. I can kind of go off on whatever rabbit holes I want to now, which is great. But then it's it's also that, oh, uh, okay. But like in your case, you have a book to write. You have a proposal to write. Um, and I know I, for one, I'm very excited for when Berengaria gets to, to come out in her book form. <laughs> and I think 
a few of us have mentioned Ellie already. So Dr. Ellie Woodacre is currently at the University of Winchester, and she is one of the, the greats of the field of queenship. And it's really through her that we all got connected. Um, she was at one point either our lecturers, lecturer, supervisors, director of studies, um, but she is the reason that we are all together. And it's it's out of that research, as Gabby's mentioned, that Team Queens, the digital collective, appeared. Um, well, I say appeared, I'm sure it was more hard work for Gabby, who was the one who was putting it together and kind of conceiving of this idea. And so Gabby, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the project itself? Yes, absolutely. So as uh, Joe just mentioned, we kind of had Team Queens as like our informal nickname for uh, all the many blesser queenship students that Ellie's had under her wings for the last few years. And we really grew into a community, you know, and that was one of the great things. Um, oh, sorry, it's one of the great things about being under Ellie is the sense of community we've got between us as students and that's grown as well it's not just been people at Winchester she's had visiting uh, research students such as Louise Gay from France uh, she's currently at Paris Bonne. obviously Amy's up at Liverpool as well so there's a real fostering of networks and because you know we're all great together we're all so passionate about queenship and I was thinking, you know, we want to know more about other queens. So, like, so much about what you can find out about queens end up being very Anglo-centric or very European-centric. And I was like, there's so many other women out there that we could learn about. And still sticking with the queenship focus is a bit difficult because, obviously, ruling women get called lots of different titles or names depending on where around the world you're looking at. So that was... A bit of an issue to tackle but you know it, I thought let's try and do something let's try and make all these queens we'll have fun researching them but bring it to a wider audience have it on a website have it on something that's free and something that's accessible that people can use because the other thing is there's so much great scholarship out there but people maybe don't know how to look for it or it's out of um, affordability for some people as well. And I was like, this can at least give people a snippet, give them some reading and get them interested in it, if that's what they want to do. So that was really just, you know, giving people a digital, like say collective, a digital group with friends, with scholars, that was going to hopefully encourage people and educate people about finding out more about all these wonderful women around the globe. I think even though kind of each of us are experts in our own little bit of the field, it's incredible how much I learned writing the biographies of all of these different women and going, okay, I am now writing a piece on a queen in Asia outside of my knowledge. Okay, let's do some background reading. Let's get into kind of what is the culture they're, they're growing up in? What what are the expectations? And it's just amazing how much there is to queenship outside of kind of the typical European market, in a sense. And so obviously we're all very passionate about queenship. 
And when Gabby kind of launched this idea to our our group of scholars, um, what piqued your interest at first, Holly? What what made you go, yes, I'm going to take part and it's going to be fantastic? I think um, I think because, as I've mentioned, my my research has kind of always been on early modern English women or British women. Um, which has kind of been by accident, I think, probably a product of the curriculum here and of the courses I took at uni. Um, so I think it was really just to fulfill that kind of gap I had in my own knowledge. And yeah, and, and I did have definitely an awareness and I did have a, a want to fulfill research interests that what didn't just like weren't so Anglo-centric and even Eurocentric. Um, and I was quite a late addition to the Ellie, wonderful Ellie cult. Um, and I'm so glad I, I I kind of came to my PhD through my partner organization through the palaces rather than I hadn't been to Winchester before. So and in terms of royal studies, I was quite a late addition to that. So I'm so glad <laughs> that um, I met these wonderful people and I think I think even just when I first started, even just getting a taste of the community that kind of Ellie had formed and all of the students had formed, I really liked the idea of working with such an interested and passionate group of scholars who all thought this cool thing was interesting um, and important as well. And I kind of liked the idea of being involved in a project that had a legacy as such because there was always an aim to create something that would be long lasting. So it's happened in the website um, and, and in the community as well. So, yeah, and I think just generally it's, it, it was really important for me to change a challenge, like my Western perception of who and what a queen is and, and what they do. Um, and being quite new to the field of Royal studies per se, because I came at it through first an art history background and then a queer history background. Um, I'm quite glad that I kind of, I seeked out that information and um, global education early. Um, yeah, so it's really like the community and and yeah, to, to fulfill those research interests that aren't just based on British queenship. I think that's that's one of the great blessings of the project is that out of necessity, I think we all in those first few months went, okay, I'm going to write about the people I know. And then it became, okay, we have to write about the people we don't know. And as you say, that learning curve for us, um, but also that kind of moment of community as well behind the scenes of going, okay, folks, I don't have anything about this. <laughs> what do I do now? Any ideas? And as I think anyone who is, is part of the project or has been working with Ellie at any point is once you are in the community, we're not letting you go. Um, so you're stuck with us now, Holly. <laughs> I'm very glad. Yeah, it, it was It's so nice starting a new thing, a new undertaking, a new project to have a ready-made group of warm lovely interesting people there so I feel so grateful um obviously starting a PhD can be very daunting but having all of you really made it a whole lot easier we're so glad <laughs> and so Amy what got you into the project um you were 
I, one of the kind of at the the other extreme of that, Holly was a, a newer addition when the project got started, and you had been there for what seems like ages. Um, you were an institution. Uh, so what got <laughs> you kind of involved and and got you excited about the project? I hope I'm a good institution and not like you know old furniture. <laughs> yeah, a good a good. Um nice bookshelf improving with age sort of thing um, <laughs> I just think it, it's um I completely echo everything Holly said first of all uh and it's just as a scholar the sort of the further you go on and through your studies you you streamline don't you and you you focus on your niche and plowing your furrow and you you don't get many opportunities to step out of that and explore something that at least on paper, is 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 radically different from everything that you've experienced prior to that. And then the wonderful thing about looking at these global queens, these these global female rulers, is there are such wonderful similarities, and and it really pulls out kind of the essence of what monarchy is and what and what the practice of queenship is. Uh, and that just wasn't going to be possible by looking at it at sort of the queens we used to, the, the European and British queens who uh, you see every day. And it was a, it was a real blessing. And I think the for me, because I, I truly, truly believe that history should be something that everyone can access. It should be as, as insofar as possible, as free and accessible as it can be because it's it's all our histories and global history is the history of people just as local history is and, and, and royal history and Team Queens ticked all of those boxes because it was and is still accessible online. All those stories, all those lives, those reigns, those people are there for anybody to tap into and be inspired by. And if we can, sort of create this legacy that anybody can go and pick up one of the biographies and, and learn something and be interested and suddenly their life has changed because they've discovered this wonderful history that they wouldn't have had access to before I think that it's just it's worth its weight in gold it's amazing and this this moment I think each of our stories of how we got into queenship and, and into history more generally has been through these kind of not necessarily a you were going to sit down and you were going to learn about this they were all very like natural oh I'm interested by this and want to know more and I think that's an incredible part of the project as you've highlighted Amy just this that it's accessible it's there it's a jumping off point um as as much as we can fit kind of constrained by our own knowledge and, and constrained by those social media limits. Um, but it's it's wonderful to serve as that jumping off point that others can go, oh, actually, I'd love to learn more about this. Uh, so hopefully kind of it will be that resource going forward. Um, and I will absolutely make sure that the link to the Team Queens website is in the show notes for anyone who's thinking, oh, well, I absolutely want to check this out. Uh, during or after I have listened to this episode. And kind of building on this this theme of global queenship and getting 
kind of beyond Europe, in a sense. A question that I have been asking all of my guests and that will be familiar to listeners who have been listening throughout this series is this question about our own positionality. And so the question here is, how does your own position as kind of a a white European scholar affect how you study queenship and how you approach global queenship? Um, So Holly, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think, um, like I maybe mentioned, I grew up in Britain, in the UK, I'm white British and my view of queenship prior to this was very small and in school I didn't really learn much about other cultures and their ruling systems maybe other than the ancient Egyptians from what I remember Um, but I really came at this with minimal knowledge and kind of yeah completely fresh eyes I don't know if that's a weird (laughs) term to use but um I really didn't have much of a background um on global queenship but of course there are inherent biases in the way I research queens and global queens because of that and I do I have tried to be as aware as possible especially when writing about other cultures that I'm personally not familiar with um, and cultural practices so as to not, you know, fetishize or alienate readers maybe who might be from that culture. Um, So, yeah, I think it definitely does. um, My position as, as a white scholar absolutely affect how I view um, other uh, queens from other cultures um but yeah all all we can do all I can do is is learn um and it's been so enlightening and interesting and really has overturned some assumptions that I didn't even know I had um so yeah it's been a really enlightening enlightening project but there's so much more to work on and to learn um in terms of positionality and being completely aware of my own positionality. I think that's kind of the biggest thing is, as you say, every single scholar comes at their research with these inherent or explicit biases. And our job is to go, okay, this is, this is who I am. This is what I research. How do I make sure that I'm doing the best research I can, knowing who I am and where I've come from? And I think that's one of the the biggest takeaways that I think you've pointed out is just this, this journey of learning that we don't have by any stretch of the imagination, all of the answers. And we're on this process of learning just as everyone else is using this resource. Um, we're just kind of a few months or years ahead um, because we've had to obviously go through this process while preparing content. And Amy, how about you? How do you find that your position as an individual fits into how you've approached queenship and, and global queenship? I think it, it it's a real sort of interesting one, isn't it? Because 
it undoubtedly has an effect and it's not necessarily immediately obvious the ways in which you know your experiences the biases that you may or may not know that you have um, that you discover along the way um, and then reflect on and and change accordingly you, you perhaps don't always realize um, and that yeah to sort of echo Holly that learning process is so valuable and I think it's we bring our whole selves to our projects don't we and I think it's important that we know what to kind of leave at the door and what to bring to the table and in that way I think with all of these women I think I've always tried to follow the sources and follow what what they're saying and and it accept it kind of for what 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 is being said and try and not impose too much of my own sort of I guess understanding of queenship because you come at it with what you're comfy with and then you have queens who are because of of the the cultures or the the setups of the courts that they're in get to do something that's maybe slightly different from what a European queen might be allowed to do within her remit and that that's so interesting and and you you know you'd miss that if you went in and just assumed that it all worked the same way so I think that that ability to sort of bring all your enthusiasm with it but leave leave yourself behind almost and just kind of detach the the person from the scholar and be the scholar and accept the history and follow it follow it wherever it takes you I think um, I think that's really really key and then you it makes you much more open to the stories that you find I think that's one of the most exciting things in researching history more generally is that we do have to follow the sources and sometimes they come out with things and you think this is not what I expected from this but here we are I'm going to have to fit this new information into what I thought I already knew and I think that's that's an exciting part when it's in a field that you're so familiar with and it's even more kind of challenging in a good sense of the word when it's about a part of history that you're not as as you say you're not as comfortable with that you're looking as Holly says at these assumptions you didn't even know you had and you go oh actually like hang on a second time for some personal and professional growth here and absolutely this, yeah this project just and brings I, I think that that's out. the benefit absolutely yeah I think that's the benefit of 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 all kinds of big picture histories isn't it because suddenly it it all slots in and you think oh gosh that's different to what I thought it was going to be and then that makes you a better scholar and it makes you a better person doesn't it just it's wonderful it's so good (laughs) (laughs) and Gabby what about you how how do you see your own identity and positionality influencing or fitting into the the themes and and work that you do obviously holly and amy have both raised two key points in terms of cultural knowledge and biases whether you know you've got them or not and i think 
what was really prevalent for me was I wanted to try and unpick some more South Af uh, South African, sorry, South American uh, ruling women, the uh, Kakikas, and those stories were really difficult to get hold of just because of a lack of evidence. And I think when you were looking at uh, outside of Europe, you had to be so aware that maybe whatever primary material you did have was really affected by colonisation, that it was maybe being written by colonial explorers. And that was a major issue with how those women were going to have been recorded and depicted. And when you've got such little evidence to give that story, you've got to think about how you write that biography, how you tell that story without just repeating directly what's been in the source of no critical thoughts. I think it's an awareness as well of knowing uh, how you can't understand what that person would have been through in that particular perspective because we don't know what that was like and being aware as ever that our sources can be really problematic and how to navigate around um, how to navigate around that material and as well as Holly kind of said we need to dig deeper in terms of doing the cultural learning in terms of actually learning about their backgrounds their histories and so on and positioning them within that and as Amy just said thinking about how they rule differently or how uh, female rulership operates in a different context and a different time and for me as a again as a white female scholar I think you've always got to be willing to challenge yourself you've always got to be thinking about um not just jumping to a conclusion or jumping to a reaction like learning to sit with something and think is this accurate is this right what am I going to do with this evidence what am I doing with this story and I yeah I mean we've loved Team Queens it's been an absolutely uh, fantastic project to bring these stories to light but there's still so and um, we might get onto that in a bit but there's still so much to be done in terms of bringing more of those stories out and I think it will be great if we can um you know if we can uncover so many other bits of work that are being done on Queens in other languages by historians in those own in their own countries as well and just bringing those tales to light and not having anglophone scholars dominate the narrative all the time as well and I think that's that's something we were all very conscious of coming into this is this this is who we are and so how do we frame this conversation that it's not a bunch of of white people talking about the rest of the world and that it it was this critical approach which again is one of the really strong points of the project is that it is this introduction to all sorts of different incredible people but it comes at it with that historian hat on that here is a critical biography not in in a criticism way of the word but here is a biography that we have thought about and kind of sat with and have reflected on how how is the history and the sources how were those influenced by what's happening at the time I think that's you've all raised some really incredible points here I think just speaks to the the strength of the project really and 
after what is has probably been quite quite a heavy question, I thought we could kind of bring this out more more broadly. I'm not sure if we can get more broad than global queenship. Um, but this can either be in the context of team queens or your own research or just your own personal interest. But I'd love to know if you have a favorite period of study or a favorite area to study. Uh, so this can again be team queens related or not. Um, but just to get a sense of who you are. Um, so Holly, let's let's hear from you first. Sure, I'll, I'll do an example of both. Um, so with um, my own research outside of Team Queens, I love, as I've already mentioned a million of times, million times, um, I've always looked at early modern Stuart women. Um, I did a queer history masters and I love looking at these networks of women who aren't necessarily royal, but networks of women and um, networks of women loving women. Um, I've looked a lot at gossip um, as a networking tool and the power of women's words, especially in connecting women with other women. Um, so that's kind of my favorite topic as such to research. And then in terms of um, team queens, I really, really liked researching, learning, reading about um, Queens in the Pacific. There's some really wonderful scholars looking at Queens in this region, um, kind of all the way from Maui to Hawaii to New Zealand. Um, and yeah, that's kind of where I found myself really, I, I enjoyed everything, but I really, really liked reading um, stories of these wonderful women from that, that area of the world. And you, you've kind of segued really nicely into the next thing I was going to ask because you've left it on this, the, the Team Queens note. Did you have a favorite global queen that you researched during the project? Yeah, I did. So um, my favorite person that I researched was Ahebi Ugbabe, and they um, lived in colonial Nigeria from late 19th to the 20th century. And they were born biologically female and they grew up impoverished with their father in prison. And they worked as a sex worker as a young adult, had no royal family, no formal education whatsoever. Um, but they had an impeccable talent and drive to learn languages. And so completely self-made themselves, learning languages, socializing with diplomats um, until they were installed as a chief in Ingala land as they spoke English. Um, and then after being chief for a while, they then ascended to king status. And um, despite their biological sex, carried on traditions of kingship, which was widely accepted. Um, and that included having multiple wives. Um, and then the only kind of the point of contention in their rule was when they performed a ritual that aimed to change their body from biologically female to biologically male, and that was resisted. And I think this is just an amazing example of um, king and queen not being as binary, people not being as binary, and um, the acceptance of the people until spirituality was involved, um, the acceptance of the people 
was something that I, again, it was one of those biases that I didn't realize I had, that it surprised me that people um, in colonized Nigeria were completely accepting of this. Um, so yeah, and just such a cool person, being able to overcome real, real hardship um, and kind of find this passion for diplomacy and language learning. It's really, really interesting person to learn about. And I think, I mean, talk about the testament of power, the idea that I think a, a lot of people may think, oh, you know, in early modern Europe, queens are very, people are hesitant maybe to accept queens because we've always had, we've always had kings and that's just how it works. And that we have this incredible ruler who goes, listen, I know I'm biologically female, but I can fix it. And everyone goes, no, 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 you're great. You're fine. Just you, you're rocking it as you are. And I think that's just a, a testament to perceptions and performances of power that there wasn't this need to, or there wasn't a, a widespread desire for this biological sex to then conform to these gender roles. I think that's absolutely amazing that this is happening way before most Europeans who would probably think of accepting that openly in a public figure. So I'm sure Gabby may say it differently based on research that she's done into kind of royal sexuality and sexuality in the medieval world. Um, so I'm happy to stand corrected. <laughs> and Amy, how about how about you? What has been either Team Queens or not your favorite period and area to study? I am, uh, of course, just living and breathing the kind of messy, bawdy, dangerous, highly politicised world of the early 18th century. Uh, so that has to be my current favourite because it's, it's again, not my natural area. And so it's, it's all a big, fat opportunity to learn something new. Um, and with every little bit, I feel like I kind of understand the Georgians a little bit better, although I know I'm on a steep learning curve. Um, I will probably always have a real soft spot for the 15th century because uh, I, I, in college, I did a Wars of the Roses module um, that was utterly fascinating because that's another period of history, even in sort of a British context, you don't really get a lot of as a child. Um, and Margaret of Anjou, who was so instrumental throughout the period, is a, is a terrifically underrated queen. Um, but in terms of team queens, I I think I if I remember rightly, I tried to pick a queen from sort of everywhere because it was just a wonderful kind of it was a whole new world to get to sort of get into. But uh, I also really enjoyed uh, more Asian queens that uh, I came across. I had a little bit of uh, time with them um, at degree level. Uh, with some of them uh, but it was a real revelation and just to be able to kind of plot around the world really and and see new queens and and see new cultures but I think particularly if because my my natural instinct oddly enough even if I go somewhere different geographically is to sit in the early modern period but of course when you 
when you venture out beyond the realms of Europe, you encounter the spectre of colonialism. It's always, always there. Um, and so particularly when you when you got to sort of the, the North American uh, rulers, female rulers or um, Central and Caribbean based rulers, um, the stories often became really difficult. Um, and that and that was interesting because it you don't hear about them and although they they can they can, people that the scholars that lived there they can tell the stories of the the people that that lived um and ruled in these areas and i wouldn't want to speak for them but um i certainly never heard those stories as a, as a brit a young brit so to be able to kind of leave them for for others like me who are curious but don't don't get given that history on a plate um that 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 felt really important because their lives have been erased uh, by the kind of layers of time and and colonial attitudes and um resurrecting them a little bit within a public domain um so that they can be looked at again i think was really really valuable and I think you've, you've pointed this out so well, is that sometimes it's it's not even a purposeful forgetting or omission in history. It's that something gets left out and then it's left out again and again and again, whether that's intentional or not. But as you say, this kind of the, the layering of that and being able to pull these incredible positions of power and the individuals behind that to pull that out of the sources and put them back in the spotlight is is really exciting um absolutely and so do you have a favorite queen that you have researched i do uh and it was um Hatshepsut of egypt who she was a daughter of a pharaoh she was the wife of the pharaoh and then eventually she just thought well i can do this better <laughs> and she got to be pharaoh herself which was a completely fantastic rise to power and as so many female rulers who were in uh, independent of kings or male rulers actually showed themselves to be as they were fantastic at what they did um, and she she was a great builder she ushered in this period of peace and prosperity in Egypt and it was I think completely completely amazing and she's not somebody who you immediately think of when you think of an Egyptian queen it's usually Cleopatra you might get Nefertiti in there somewhere mightn't you but um, that would be your go-to and because of that, you it's so easy to miss this this fantastic queen. Um, and Egypt was was my first love when I was little. So the ability to kind of go back and um, feed the tiny Egyptologist that still lives somewhere in me uh, was was a real treat. It was lovely. I feel like most of us would have had the book on Egyptology that had that nice shiny gold cover. If people are nodding I'm so glad it's not just me yes. <laughs> um, yes. with the red, it was amazing the yeah yes. yes 
it's one of those where you just you get so kind of enthralled by the history and then you find out that there are women who are going actually I can do this better let me do it it's it's amazing and I think it's it's such a testament to when history is out there and accessible and kind of researched but fun people want to engage with it and there is just something in it that just draws you in and then it never lets you out again as I think we will all attest to yeah but I I love that little little past Amy has gotten to live through current Amy and get to look at at ancient Egypt again I love that for you (laughs) and so Gabby last but not least same questions um do you have a favorite period uh or area to study uh team queens or not or both up to you (laughs) i think i will always remain like a medievalist at heart and particularly around the 11th to 13th centuries but i like i said when i started i'm just so fascinated by everything i think we would all be happy if we could just spend our lives sat in a corner reading books on histories around the world and women around the world and everything and just absorb all that knowledge um in terms of you know i think what i really enjoyed about teen queens was actually reading everyone else's like reading about uh you know uh the female rulers in india for example and through China and so on and in terms of my favourite area of study outside of the PhD I'm gonna say more towards France now because I think you do see such powerful um, interesting women there but in terms of actually out um, within Team Queens I think China was really interesting and that actually leads me on to my favourite queen which was Wu Zetian and she reigned in the uh, 7th to 8th century and she was just a powerhouse you know she was had a long remarkable life she was the power behind the throne she was often heralded as ambitious and you can see that through her actions and I think she's just an absolutely fascinating woman because she takes control of the court. She is able to um, preside over the court properly. She can, uh, she acts as regent and she uses absolute power. And she's a really effective governor you know she's an effective administrator which I know might not necessarily sound like the most exciting thing in the world but it means she got stuff done and that's what we want to see we want to see a queen a ruler who can get things done and she was definitely it so I think again way outside what I would usually have thought about but I saw that with other biographies that people did as well, that China's actually such a fascinating area. And I know, Joe, you did some on Korea, which were equally amazing to think about as well. You will be especially excited. Uh, We have a whole episode in the series on queenship in Korea and I think it was Japanese empresses. Um, So they are just incredible, incredible histories. And again, names that I had not come across, even in undergraduate history, when we were looking at 
histories of Asia. This obviously did not play into what professors thought was important to understand how politics worked in the 1800s. They thought, oh, you don't need that. But just these incredible holders of power that the world should know about because they are so amazing in where they come from and what they do and how how they go about doing it. Um, and if anyone listening has gotten excited or intrigued by any of these um, particular queens that we've highlighted, um, please do go check out the website where you can find all of these amazing people. And so to wrap up our wonderful episode and to wrap up the series, um, I would love to get your thoughts on why it is so important to study global queenship. I think that's kind of a, a really good point to leave us and listeners on. Um, so Holly, why is it important to study global queenship? I think like everything we've mentioned to challenge your own perceptions, to learn about power structures and hierarchies that are radically different from the ones you're familiar with. And because it's so interesting, there are so many sources that are, are available, rich, wonderful sources that, especially from a UK perspective, aren't written about, aren't discussed, um, that, that tell the stories of these wonderful people who lived um, and, and who ruled and yeah, basically it's, there's so much out there to learn. Um, and the process of doing so, the process of learning and challenging yourself and overturning your own assumptions is so important as a scholar and, and as a person. There's not much I can add to that. That is incredibly well put. Uh, Amy, what about you? Why do you think it is so important to study global queenship? That's that's a tricky one to follow, to be fair. And Holly was very succinct. <laughs> but I, I think not just global queenship in a, in, a, in a way, just global history generally, isn't it? It's so key because we are all interconnected and all of our histories overlap. Nothing, no country, no person, no monarchy evolves in isolation. Uh, and studying global queenship enables us to widen our understanding of the practice of queenship and and understand what that that means. And it's so often so similar, at the same time being very different to what we're used to. And it really does, it stretches you as a scholar and you can kind of feel it at work, that that development that happens as you as you widen your your view of what the world is um, and I think as historians we often look at our little bit don't we we often look at our one puzzle piece and we forget sometimes to put it back into the whole and when you can see the whole picture suddenly your bit makes more sense and I think global queenship global history in 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 whatever through through whatever lens you you take the global perspective I think it it just enriches the understanding of the bit that's yours, the bit that you completely, completely uh, devote your life to. So it's it's essential, not just valuable, I think. 
I think one thing any historian will say is that history doesn't happen in a vacuum and global history is and global queenship is really the epitome of that is as you say in order for puzzle pieces to fit you need the whole puzzle <laughs> um, otherwise it's not going to make entire sense and we'll give the last word on this to our fearless team queens founder Gabby, why do you think it's so important to study global queenship? I could pop off a million reasons in my head why it's important, but then we might be here for another two or three hours. But I think it's important because we don't know enough about it. There's all these stories, as Amy and Holly have said, all these stories waiting to be told, waiting to be corrected, perhaps, if, like I say, we've got problematic sources. And... I think it's important because as um, both Holly and Amy have said, it stretches your mind and your horizons. And I think, again, as Anglophone scholars, we need to be so conscious of making sure that there's work being out there in other languages, that we look at learning about it, engaging with it, citing it. And it really will just broaden um, your horizons. It will make all of us better scholars knowing more about the world it will make us better people knowing more about the world and additionally you know like we're about gender and power looking at queens and why would you not want to look at that somewhere else in the sense you know this is what we're here for the hub for you know this is something we love like go and look at it in a different place and enjoy it be fascinated by it because you know we just thrive, you know, obviously we're all very passionate people about Queens, this is why we're here, this is why we had the project, but, you know, I think it's just important to put another, more pieces of the puzzle together, put it all together, bring it together, and just give us, you know, a better picture of what female rule looks like around the world. What a great way to end this episode and to end the series. Uh, thank you to each of my guests today, to Holly, to Amy, and to Gabby for joining me. It has been wonderful to get to talk Global Queenship and Team Queens with each of you. So thank you for, for coming on today. Thank you. And thank you. It's my pleasure. It has been an absolutely incredible journey for me getting to see all of this research that's happening, I guess more properly to hear about all of the research that is happening uh, and to see how these same themes of gender and power are played out around the world and throughout history. And I do hope that you as listeners have really enjoyed the series as well. So please do go back and listen check out the show notes uh, for this episode and for the others um, and i want to say thank you again to the guests uh, who have been on today and in the other episodes and thank you to listeners who have been along for the journey with us thanks for listening to this episode of the tudor's dynasty podcast you can follow and support the tudor's dynasty podcast on facebook Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.